Hi, my name is Karina, and I'm here to bring you the second Bible reading today. It comes from Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, 1 to 28. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, means king of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in the regard of that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an, an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better governance. Now there has been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I was a little bit worried there. My first question is, whose idea was Hebrews? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, you will need our Bibles open for this one, and there's an outline uh, in your news sheets that you might find uh, helpful as well. My name's Pete. I'm one of the elders here, and it's a joy to bring to you um, a, a sermon on a really wonderful part of God's Word. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, complex and deep and wonderful part of your word. We pray, Father, as we hear, our hearts will be struck and we would see again what Jesus is doing now and how in him we are completely safe and saved. We pray these things for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen. Uh, I think some of the uh, funnest and most daunting ministry I've ever been a part of is children's ministry. So I think if you like the Sunday crash that's happening now, or the Sunday Kids Church, or once upon a time, I uh, think even public school scripture. Uh, I remember uh, teaching scripture in one class once, and we were teaching the story of the paralyzed man, you know, the one lowered through the roof and forgiven by Jesus, and um, we were speaking to the children of the faithfulness of his friends, right? how without them, that man couldn't come. Now, he was paralyzed without use of his legs until one kid at the back of the class puts up his hand. You know what he said? He said, yes, he could. He could come. And we said back, no, he couldn't. He needed his friends, to which he replied, I'll never forget it. Yes, he could. I'll show you. Right? And before we had a chance to stop him, he had himself lying flat on the laminate floor. And with just the use of his forearms and hands, he proceeded to slap and drag and slap and drag himself right across the front of the class. And I can tell you, it mattered little what we said next. Right? That was the lesson that day. Um, I think some of the uh, funnest, most daunting ministry I've been part of is children's ministry. But what I remember being especially daunted by is not so much the slap and drag, but um, the kinds of questions that children ask. Right, and, and maybe our kids' church team are hearing these right now. Questions like, how would you answer this? Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I need to give that some thought. There was no umbilical cord. Um, could God create a rock so heavy, here it comes, that even he couldn't lift it? Uh, I remember uh, hearing an old ministry trainer of mine telling me once that if you ever do get asked that question, your answer is, I don't know. Um, but if he could, he'd put it on you. Um, uh, or what about this one? Much more serious, though, this time. What is Jesus doing now? H how would you answer that question? H how much do you think it matters? After all, we're all very clear, aren't we, with what Jesus did. You know, wonderfully, magnificently, how he died for us and rose again. And we're all very clear on what Jesus will do. Wonderfully, magnificently, he will turn again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But, but what is Jesus doing now? And why does it really matter? Well, I want to suggest to you, as we come to Hebrews chapter 7 today, that's the question the author will answer. Right, and not just to satisfy some kids' church curiosity, but, but actually because this is what we need to know, really need to know, if we are to be sure deep in our hearts that we are safe and saved. 
After, all, after last week, it just might be that we started to worry about whether we are safe and saved. Do you remember last week with the, with the talk of falling away, the uh, away from me, I never knew you? It, it just might be that we started to worry. Am I safe? Am I saved? Or, or if not then, perhaps it's when we're away from here, all alone, and our doubts creep in. Or maybe our sins come back. Or we're just worn out by the Christian life. Or maybe it's as we think about those who we love who are also in Christ. Maybe those we've lost to death. Maybe those we're losing into depression, dementia. We start to worry. Will they make it to the end? Will I make it to the end? Am I really completely saved? Well, honestly, that's what the author wants us to see as he answers our question, what is Jesus doing now? But he also says, if you want to know that, then first you need to know this. You need to know about Melchizedek. I was told once, if you ever want to see a whole congregation of people's eyes glaze over, then all you need to do is say to them, we're about to learn about Melchizedek. And let's hope that doesn't happen today. So you need to know about Melchizedek and how Jesus is like him for you. After we may have noticed in the last two weeks that twice, in fact, we've already been told about Melchizedek. And twice we've been told that Jesus is like him. Uh, two weeks ago with Ollie, chapter 5, verse 10, it said, Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Or, or last week with John, chapter 6, verse 20, he, Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And, and so you see, the question you're supposed to be asking right now, the reason you're supposed to be right on the edge of your seats asking is, who on earth is Melchizedek? And why do we need another like him? That's what the author of Hebrews goes on to show us, you see. He says, first, who on earth is Melchizedek? Answer, well, he's the greater high priest who points to Jesus. He's the greater priest who points to Jesus. And Why? Well, there in your outlines, because unlike every other priest, he is both priest and king. See it, chapter, chapter 7, verse 1. Do you have it open? Chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king. Of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. You see, the first thing our author wants you to see and know about Melchizedek is he is both king and priest. And maybe we think, and some of your faces are saying this, so what? Big deal. Well, here's the thing within the Old Testament, if there were two things you could not be, Right? Both at once, at the same time. If there were two hats you could not wear, both at once, at the same time, they were these, king and priest. You see, according to God and according to his rules, priests weren't kings. Kings weren't priests. And if they tried to be, as King Saul did, 1 Samuel 13, King Uzziah did, 2 Chronicles 26, then both were taken away from you. 
I don't know about you, it reminded me of the old Sesame Street song, if you're old enough to know it. One of these is not like the other. One of these just doesn't belong. Maybe it's just me and Kay from Kay Smile. But... See, that's what it was like with priesthood and kingship, do you see? And yet, what do we see in Hebrews 7? Who is Melchizedek? He's the one and only priest who's king. The one and only king who's priest. Melchizedek, you see, is greater than every other priest. And he's greater, did you notice, because, well, he gives the blessing, even to Abraham. And he gets the gift, even from Abraham. See it again, verse 1, verse 1. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And then verse 2. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It's just as we heard from the reading in Genesis 14, and here's the point. That only happens for someone who's greater. After all, did you see it explained there in verse 7? Look, verse 7. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In other words, the greater person gives the blessing. After all, can you, can you see the picture? The, the one who gives the blessing, standing tall, uh, arm outstretched, ready to give the blessing. And the one who receives it, down on one knee, looking up, glad to receive what's given. And what's the point? The point is that's Melchizedek giving the blessing. He's the one who's greater and he's the greater priest. And he's greater, the author goes on, because he gets the tithe or he's given the gift. Even again by the great one, Abraham. And even, did you notice, and this is where it gets just a little bit strange, not just by Abraham, did you see it? but by Levi, his descendant, as well. Jump down to verse 9. Look, verse 9. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Why? Well, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. How does that work? Well, here's the logic. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Levi. And that's where the priestly line comes from, the Aaronic Levitical line. And where were they in Genesis 14? Well, our author says that they were, if you like, in Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, I like to imagine this a little bit like babushkas, right? which is a much safer thing to find pictures of than loins, I can assure you. It's, it's one in another, in another, in another. That's the point, see? Jacob in Isaac, in, in Isaac, in Abraham, and giving the tithe to Melchizedek. See, there's the point again. Melchizedek is greater. Even than that, Famous family line. See, he's both priest and king. 
He gives the blessing. He gets the tithe. And, and thirdly and finally and most importantly, he's a permanent priest who lives forever and who prepares for and points to Jesus. And again, this one takes little explaining. See, I wonder if you noticed in that Genesis reading, Genesis 14, one of the really strange things is the way that Melchizedek just shows up. In fact, if you read the context around that part we had read, that is the only part that mentions Melchizedek, other than one verse later in Psalm 110, which gets quoted in our passage. Right? There's no introduction. There's no family line. In a book of the Bible where family lines are so important, right, and everyone has them. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, you'll know you can hardly turn the page without reading someone else who fathered someone, who fathered someone, who fathered someone, who fathered someone. And yet when it comes to Melchizedek, what do we see? We see no father, no child, no beginning, no end. And our author picks that up. Did you see there verse 3? Have a look again, verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Let's not get the author wrong here, okay? I don't think he's saying that in real life, real history, Melchizedek really did live forever. Right? But, but as you read the story in Genesis, that's the picture you get. That's the pattern that's set. It's in a kind of literary sense, it's, it's as if his priesthood never ends. It's as if his priesthood goes on forever. Just as the one he points to really, really will. Right? That, that's how great Melchizedek is. That's the whole point of those first 10 verses, right? That's how big he is. A friend of mine told a story just this week of a boy in his care who, for the very first time, saw a Christmas tree. Right? He, was, he was just old enough to walk and talk and to sort of put words to the things that he said. And so, you know, it was like ball, star, you know, gift, tree. And so it was all very, very cute, this little kid, you know, pointing out the Christmas tree. And he also said that later that night, they, they all went out, this, him and his friends, they caught their child, out to a restaurant for a meal. And when they got to the restaurant, right, little boy, here's what they saw. Okay? And they say, this little boy who's just seen a Christmas tree gets out of the car, looking down, and then he stops, looks up. With eyes wide, he could just manage one word. Do you know what it was? Big. Right, that's all he could manage. There's the Christmas tree. Big. And that's the author's point, do you see? That's what you're supposed to see. Who is Melchizedek? He's big. He's great. And so is the one who's come like him. We're used to, through the book of Hebrews, hearing contrasts. Jesus is unlike, Jesus is unlike, but not here. Jesus is like him. That's who Jesus is. That's how big he is. That's why you need to know Melchizedek. And yet the question remains, why? 
right? Why do we need another like him, all right? Because you don't get me wrong, right? Cool tree, don't get me wrong. If you like, cool Melchizedek. But, but why do we need another like him? And that's what the author goes on to explain. And the answer he says first is because that other priestly way will not ever work, right? The old Levitical priestly way could not ever save. Pick it up, verse 11, see verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law, uh, basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Or, or if you jump further down to verse 18, which kind of brackets the section, 11 and 18, it says it even more clearly, it repeats the point, verse 18. The former regulation is set aside, the old Levitical way, because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. See, I'm sure you know the saying, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's working fine, don't replace it. And yet, what did God do? He, he replaced the old way. He, he replaced the Levitical way. Why? Well, because the other priestly way will not ever work. It will not make you friends again with the God you've made your enemy. Why? Well, because among other reasons, it was just as Faye said actually in the kids' talk, it was never, ever designed to do that. So if you realize this, but the other Levitical priesthood was never designed to make you right with God. Why was it designed? It was designed to show your need. It was designed to point ahead. Right? Like, a, like an x-ray for a bone. Or a sign to a place. It said your friendship with God is broken. And there's where you can be healed. Right? You have a desperate problem. And only he can fix it. See, it wasn't designed to do the healing. It, it was designed to point you forward to a better way, to a different way. And actually, as you read the part in between those two brackets, verse 11 and verse 18, the author really wants you to see how different this new way is. Did you notice it? Do you see how he stresses the difference? We'll have a go on the table. How he stresses a different family line. Thanks, Eddie. Verse 13, 14. Different qualifications. Radically different effectiveness. And only one guaranteed to always, always work. So here's the argument of the author. Why do we need another Melchizedek? Because that other priestly way will not ever work. Just as, by the way, no other way to God will ever, ever, ever work. Not through our own efforts, not by our own performance, no matter our religion, no matter our ritual, no matter our goodness. 
Nothing else will ever work to make us right with God. First reason. Second, because even all those other priests could not keep you safe. See, you and I find this hard to appreciate, right? But for an Old Testament Israelite, if you wanted to have a happy, healthy relationship with God, you needed a priest to go before you. You needed a priest to clear the way. You needed a priest to offer the sacrifice. So all your hopes were tied to him. Right? Your way to God was tethered to him. It's like, in a way, a glider in a plane. It's only like. <laughs> um, have you seen it? It's tied together. Tethered together. The, the plane with the power to move you forward. The plane with the power to lift you up. And, and that's what it was like with the priest, you see. He had the power to move you to God. Tethered to him, you could safely approach. But of course, if the plane failed or the plane died, then you'd better quickly find another if you want to stay up in the air, right? And then you'd better find another and, and another. And, well, that's what it was like with the Levitical priest, you see. You had to keep on finding another. Why? Because they kept on failing. They kept on dying. And you were only safe and saved if they stayed in the air. It's there in our passage, you see it there in verse 23. Jump forward, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Or a bit later, verse 27. Verse 27 from the start. Unlike the other high priests, it's comparing Jesus, he did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the people. Or there in verse 28, he's kind of the summary for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. That's not, by the way, saying they were particularly weak. No, it's just saying they were just like us. They simply could not do what we so desperately, desperately need them to do if we're to be safe and saved. And That's why you need another, do you see? You need a perfect forever priest to keep you safe and saved. And that's who Jesus is, do you see? That's, that's what the point of this whole passage. Right? In the words of my young friend, Jesus is big. In the words of Hebrews 7, he's perfect, sinless, living forever. See it, verse 24, back to verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Or verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And that's why we so desperately need him, do you see? Not just for what he did back then with his dying and rising again. Not just for what he'll one day do when he returns again in glory. No, we need him. You need him for what he is doing now. What is he doing now? He's being our Melchizedek priest. He is living forever for us. He's taking what he did once and for all, full and complete, there on the cross, 
And moment by moment, second by second, he's applying that work to you. For we who trust in him. And not just, by the way, when times are good. Or can I say, when you are good and maybe feel as though we deserve it. But even when we don't, right? Especially when we don't. In your very worst moments of fear and doubt, in your very worst moments of sin, Jesus is living for you and saving you if you trust in him. After all, did you see it there, verse 25? If you forget nothing, if you remember nothing else, right? Just remember verse 25. It's my favorite verse of the chapter. See verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Because he's being Melchizedek for you right now. See, what is Jesus doing now? He's doing that. He's doing everything we need to keep us safe and saved. He's doing everything you need to keep you to the end. So response? Just two things, very briefly. First, I want to say, don't fear. And second, draw near. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus... Do not ever fear that you may not make it to the end. Do not ever fear that you may not be fully saved. Jesus is doing, even now, everything you need to keep you safe and saved. I I love the way Dane Ortland puts it in his book, if you've never read it, uh, Gentle and Lonely, it's a good one. He writes this, We all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God can reach. We say we're totally forgiven and sincerely believe our sins are forgiven, but pretty much, mostly. But there's that one deep, dark, part of our lives perhaps even our present lives that seems so intractable so ugly that we fear his forgiveness could not reach and brothers and sisters I wonder what that is for you some sin of your past Some sin of your present? Some awful temptation of thought or thought that keeps coming back to your mind? Some lingering doubt about God or yourself? 
Brothers and sisters, whatever it is for you, what does the author of Hebrews say? He says, do not fear. Do not worry. The forgiveness of Jesus really does reach that far. Why? Because he is your Melchizedek priest. Right? He really is Christmas tree big. In fact, he's even bigger than that. And you really are tethered to him if you've put your trust in him. He will keep you safe. Right? First, don't fear. Second, draw near. After all, those are the ones who he does completely save, doesn't he? Just see there verse 25? Those who draw near to God through him. And so, right, do that. Draw near. How? Well, by coming to Jesus. By trusting in Jesus. And then by sticking with Jesus, like, like the glider and the plane, do you remember? Like, he's the one, actually, who has the power to draw you near to God. And so tether yourself to him. Put your trust in him. And can I say, if you're here today and you haven't yet done that, on behalf of everyone else, we urge you, tell him sorry. Tell him thank you. Tell him please. Tell him you're sorry that up till now you have turned your back on him. Tell him you're grateful that he would do even this for you. And ask him please to draw you near and keep you safe and saved. Because his promise is he will. Completely. Forever. And for the many of us here who have already done that, can I say, let's keep doing it. As the author of this book will say a little bit later, like, let's keep our eyes on him. Let's keep our hope in him. Let's resist the temptation to go elsewhere or look elsewhere. I can tell you in my more romantic moments at home, it's a little bit of a reveal moment for me, I'll sometimes say to my darling wife, my love, I'd be a fool to look anywhere else. I'd be crazy to look for another. And that's the point, do you see? You have in Jesus all you need to be completely saved. So let's keep listening to him and speaking to him and encourage one another to do the same. And so as we close, I'm sorry to say, I cannot tell you whether Adam and Eve had a belly button. I cannot tell you whether God could create a rock so heavy that even he couldn't lift it. But I can tell you this because God tells us this. I know what Jesus is doing now. He's doing everything you need to keep you safe and saved. He's doing everything you need to keep you to the end if you trust in him. Can we thank him for that now? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thanks for Melchizedek. Thanks, Father, for his real life in history and recording him in the scriptures and, Father, the way that by him you show us how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. Thank you that Jesus is our permanent forever king and priest. 
We thank and praise you that he is living right now and he is now completely saving all who draw near to you in him. We pray, Father, may that be all of us and may we know the relief and joy that that is. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.